Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Our guest today is Dr. Pam Lipsit. She's currently a professor of surgery, anesthesiology, and critical care nursing at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and she's the incoming president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. We have an opportunity to speak with her today and learn some of her perspectives, working closely with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, a little bit about her personal background, and to end up hearing a little bit about her perspective on the future of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thanks so much, Dr. Lipset, for joining us today. Thanks, Rich, for asking me to be here. Well, uh, as we usually do with these, I thought I'd let you uh, begin by telling us a little bit about your, your background, how you ended up in surgery, surgical critical care, and perhaps some of your clinical and, and research areas of interest. Well, I uh, had a very broad training. In fact, my undergraduate degree is a BA, not a BS, uh, from Regis College in Massachusetts, where I majored in uh, molecular biology. I did that because uh, I was originally interested in being a scientist of some type, probably a biochemist, and I wasn't absolutely committed initially to uh, an MD degree. In fact, I originally went to University of Kansas to get my PhD in biochemistry. And I thought at the time I would be doing almost uh, drug development. Uh, My research project at the time was uh, on very early uh, molecular mechanisms of what has subsequently turned out to be Taxol. Uh, Quite an interesting uh, problem, which would have been a wonderful project had I continued on. I think what I learned in the first uh, year plus of uh, graduate school was that while I enjoyed the intellectual aspects of investigative research, I really liked people a bit more. And it was at that point I decided to abandon the PhD and to pursue an MD degree. So I then went to the University of Massachusetts where I got my MD I think I originally wanted to be a surgeon. I grew up, and you'll hear in my presidential address, that my first operation was at age four. I operated on my chatty Kathy. I took her apart and got her right back together. And uh, so I, I had some physical disabilities as a young child. I actually had a club foot and uh, developed polio from the Salk vaccine. So I was uh, quite involved with orthopedic surgeons during my early childhood. And so I saw that they fixed people. It was a very attractive thing. Once I got into medical school, I wasn't so convinced I wanted to be a surgeon. I, I, I loved everything. Uh, I thought differential diagnosis were uh, interesting. And ultimately, I wanted to be a physician who could operate and take care of the sickest people. What better is there than surgical critical care? Again, as you and I have talked about, we have a personal connection as, as you passed the baton along to me as one of my professors when I was in medical school. From what I understand, as it's continuing to change now, but the, the entire sort of 
field and concepts of fellowships in critical care, both in medicine, anesthesiology, and surgery, were changing in the, in the 80s and 90s and how people got a formal training in that. Uh, and if you want to share us your experience, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's quite, quite interesting. I think at the time uh, I did my surgical training, uh, there was not a mandate to do a critical care uh, fellowship. In fact, it was just coming into fruition that they existed at all. Uh, Hopkins was one of the early accredited surgical critical care fellowship program, and it didn't exist until after I joined the faculty. So I didn't do formal training in critical care. I simply took the exam several times, not because I didn't pass, but because I've had to recertify twice. Uh, and I'm now on the, the board for Trauma Burns Critical Care, the American Board of Surgery. So I think it's certainly now um, mandatory to train in accredited uh, fellowship training program. But I think what we're going to see over the next several years may be actually a move to blend the training programs and maybe even perhaps ultimately to have a single certifying uh, a body or at least a way to ensure that we all have uh, equal competencies. And that's a pretty aggressive view right now. I think it's a long view. It's not a view that any of the boards would currently agree to, but I think it is the ideal world in my view. And again, in reading about this, it seems that history, uh, there was an attempt to try and bring it all together, but they couldn't get agreement initially. Uh, and send them, then the individual boards, anesthesiology, surgery, and medicine, each went out on their own and give us our, our current situation. But uh, as I've learned working with SCCM, we intensivists have much more in common than, than not. Well, I think certainly being in our society, which is in every way a multidisciplinary, multi-professional society, I think that is the advantage of this society. And it's certainly why I have always favored it above any other society for critical care, because I think it values that we do have more in common and that each discipline, when working together, actually does provide better care for patients, in my view, and definitely better training. So, uh, you know, I spent some time trying to go over uh, your, your academic areas, and, the, and they're quite broad within surgery and surgical critical care, and I was wondering if you could take some time pointing out some of the important ones like patient safety and, and, uh, and surgical infections and things like that. Well, I think I've always looked uh, at being a surgeon. I'm somewhat practical in, in what I've been interested in, and I've been interested in outcomes, complications, and the prevention of those uh, complications. And when you look at why surgical patients don't do well or what is what are one of their primary problems, it's infection. And I think uh, much like primary care and preventive medicine, I think any steps we can do to eliminate risk or modify or ameliorate risk is really important. So I've been very aggressively interested in, in ways to prevent infection, but I've also been interested in therapeutic trials of the, the treatment of, of sepsis. On the other hand, I've been interested in finding out what really happens to our patients who are critically ill uh, following a surgical problem, particularly when it's been more of a long-term nature. So uh, we did one of the very early studies looking at the functional outcome after a continuous ICU stay of more than seven days. I think that's a really important contribution because we looked at not only what happened to the patients from a sort of categorical, did they live or die, because no one really knew that, but 
what was their functional status? How did it affect not only them, but their family? So we really did a comprehensive uh, look at that. And I think now this is a very hot topic. Right. I was just going to say, you, you, you've hit on what has been one of the most discussed areas that was recently on, on PBS talking about this, where they discussed the, the broken survivors of critical care, where, you know, okay, great, we've gotten them through their acute illness. Now what? What is society going to do with these large numbers of people that were technically able to get through this? I think it's one of the probably the big one of the bigger issues on your plate. Uh, I think it is a big issue on the plate, and I think uh, as a society, we've really embraced the idea that we need to do more in this area. Uh, Maureen Harvey, Dale uh, Needham, and others have really recently had a consensus conference, which will be published relatively in the near future, and have brought together a group of experts not typically interested in critical care, but now interested in this long-term survivorship or the quality of the long-term survivorship. There are occupational therapists, physical therapists, family physicians, all need to be educated. And I would say insurers need to be educated. Well, and taking that, I mean, just because the topic you're bringing up is such an important one, and, and I think very, very exciting, politicians get involved in this, right? Because, and again, when this was brought up on this recent PBS show, where the concept is at the individual level, as a practicing intensivist, in general, we go along with family wishes, and especially practicing like in New York or whatever, where the expectations are very, 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 very high, that it's not about if we say, it's often, well, this is the fifth time this patient with cancer may have been admitted to the ICU. And this was what was brought up on this show, that many times those kinds of patients are asked by family members to continue to pursue. And it's very, very difficult in this country now to get a lot of buy-in about doing anything less than everything for a lot of these kinds of patients. I think it's a very, very difficult area for our country to get its mind around how we're proceeding, you know? I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, this is where you hear some politically motivated groups talking about the death panels. I think our society needs to come to grips that life is not eternal and that quality of life is quite important and I would really encourage every person to talk to their family members about how they would like their life to be, whether if they were in a incapacitated state. Uh, this is something that will happen to everyone at some point in time. And yet our society members often act as if it will not happen to them. And just one last point, just because it's so important, is, is this is where for example, like the Dartmouth Atlas will measure a hospital, or, and this has come up a lot in New York City, where certain hospitals in New York City where patients will spend a large amount of time in ICUs before they die and others won't. And it gets very troublesome to me as a practicing physician where I'm measured on the basis of that when I'm not really empowered. It's often very a conflicted kind of data where it's easy because of all these studies from from groups like yours and others where say they show regional differences in the nation where it's just easier to do things differently than it may be in some parts of the country. Well, I think the implication that the intensivist makes the decision about the extent and aggressiveness of care uh, is certainly not the ethical framework that we have been operating on in this country for the last probably at least 20 years, where patient autonomy and their ability to either make a substituted judgment or actual judgment has been the primary rule. And this has led to a significant use of resources to all ends at all costs in 
you know, depending on the institution you're in uh, and the demographics of the patients that you treat. So it's a very complex problem and I think often politically motivated and a very difficult societal question that we need to talk about. Um, one of the, the other issues I wanted to speak with you about, because you and your group at Johns Hopkins has done such amazing work on this, is patient safety. And I, I wanted to give you a couple minutes just to focus in. Again, having been there as a medical student, it is something that has sort of exploded from your group, even since when I was there, in terms of not that we didn't want to do what was best for patients when I was there as a medical student, but making a science out of safety. It's just been so impressive to hear what's been coming out of your group, and I was wondering if you could take a few minutes to talk about it. Well, I think that really is the big thing, is that we have made it a science. I think we've always, everyone has always been motivated by doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. But I think the fact that we have elevated it to a science, that we have looked at culture, that we've looked at uh, human factors and, and systems analysis. We've really brought important concepts that were not are not in medicine. They're in other fields. They're used in business. But I think this is a way, clearly, to improve how we take care of patients. And, and two particular areas that I've seen uh, you, you and your group had written on were, that I thought were both fascinating is, is hand washing and sign out, where you're taking what sound like simple things and analyzing them in a scientific way to say, you know, here's where we are and here's where we think we are and here's where we need to be. And I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, hand hygiene sounds like such a uh, simple process. You know, your mother teaches you that you need to wash your hands. And yet we know that this is something that simply is not part of our routine. And that conceptually is where we need to go. It needs to become automatic. It needs to be like putting on a seatbelt, where every time you get in the car, you put on the seatbelt. And until we remove the barriers to doing that, so we've really done some interesting and novel things. Uh, we have studied electronic monitoring to knowing when individuals are coming in and out of rooms and accessing hand hygiene. Our first study in this area was really fascinating because we had voices come on in the hall if you left a room without washing your hands or performing some form of hand hygiene. A voice came on and said, you didn't wash your hands, and everyone heard it. And guess what? Infections went down. How did you, I'd heard about this, but how did you, how did that work? There were voices like they put speakers in or how did it oh, work? Oh yeah, we had speakers. Wow. Uh, we had speakers in the hall uh, and we had it all, everything was electronically monitored. Wow. And uh, we demonstrated that nosocomial infections decreased uh, more than 25%. Uh, we've subsequently gone on to look at, so that was a targeted performance-based analysis that it was almost, uh, it was a bit more of a stick than a carrot. And so we tried to study the positive aspects of targeted, if you did hand hygiene, did you do more if you got positive reinforcement? So we did a study looking at uh, positive reinforcement, but it was slightly random in the sense that it wasn't after every every hand hygiene attempt because we've found out that there are more than 100 an hour, 100 an hour in an average ICU. 
hundred times you should be having a hand hygiene opportunity in a single unit. That it would be continuous noise if we did it after everyone. So we had we had a computer. So working algorithm. around a lot of these human factors engineering issues to to try and get some signal out of it. Right? Yes, yeah. and and again we saw a positive effect. We're currently doing a study. Uh, it's an NIH-sponsored study now in multiple institutions, uh, multiple Hopkins institutions, so Hopkins, Bayview, probably in Arundel, and we're looking at Suburban now. The, neither of those uh, last two have actually initiated this study yet. And this is a random uh, use of prompts uh, with uh, sort of motivational speaks, sound bites to say, uh, why one should be washing our hands. So it's it's really addressing the behavioral factors of hand hygiene. But I think it really needs to become automatic. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what from all of that research, what would be your sort of, um, if you could have it your way in a new ICU, what would be the kinds of ways, that, what would be the optimal way from your perspective to try and optimize Well, I think there's hygiene? two things. I think you need a champion or a group of champions, and you need model behavior, and you need to make it automatic. So everyone understands it's an expectation in our unit. If you see someone enter a room without performing hand hygiene, call them out. Tell them you expect them to do hand hygiene. We've also tried to incorporate patients and their families in the same way, and that's also in the literature to be effective. So I think we just have to do better. It's simple. It's cost-effective, extremely cost-effective. And uh, I think modeling behavior by leaders really is a big part so, of so, so it's a combination of culture change and technology. Yes. Right? To, to, you develop the culture change, and then the technology can help you keep the culture change going and reminding people when they're uh, er- erroneous in their ways, etc. That is exactly correct. I thought we'd let you conclude, as we've sort of gone along here quickly, and let you take a couple minutes just to share with the members of SCCM what you think some of the important issues for the upcoming year might be from your perspective. Well, I think one of the fundamental values of being a member of SCCM, aside from its uh, multi-professional, multidisciplinary nature, is really our educational products. And I think we want to continue to work to enhance and deliver products that really you can access from your computer, at your home, really at your convenience. And we, I think, want to work towards adding additional value in those areas. It it is our best products. Uh, It is what we do well. And we want to be able to do that not only to the the U.S. contingents, but by delivering them on a platform that uses the available technology, we can affect people around the world at a reasonable cost. And I I think we're going to really work hard to do that over over the next year. No, and, and I hear this all the time, actually, from people coming up to me, is that that is what they look to SCCM for. What are the current standards of care? What are the most cutting-edge approaches to things? Uh, looking for protocols and then educating at, at all different levels, too. That's what one of the things that makes this both a challenge, exciting, and difficult. People coming in as medical students, residents, fellows, non-physicians, nurses, etc., and yet all of them needing to understand the core approach to the critically ill or injured patient, right? Well, in fact, that's exactly correct, but I think one of the things that we have not focused as well as we could have, and I think we need to move towards, is team training. Team training for both crew resource management 
and also in uh, interdisciplinary training. We come from fundamentally different backgrounds and conceptual frameworks. We need to acknowledge that, but we need to use it in order to enhance our care delivery teams. I think we're in a potentially tumultuous period of time with the duty hour requirements, and we're not sure how things will go in the next couple of years in just how we're able to take care of our patients with our workforce changing. But we also want to ensure that we are still able to educate our primary residents in uh, critical care because certainly anyone who practices in a hospital, whether you're an intensivist or not, you need to know this fundamental uh, information. I was just discussing this on a previous podcast, is that it's not about balancing patient safety and education anymore. It's about doing them both and doing them both well. Absolutely agree. Well, uh, Dr. Lipset, this has really been fantastic. Uh, We've had an opportunity today to speak with Dr. Pam Lipset. She's a professor of surgery, uh, anesthesia, and critical care nursing at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and she's the incoming president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.